When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Aaron Cohen. Aaron covers the arts for numerous publications and teaches English, journalism, and humanities at City Colleges of Chicago, and is also the author of Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, an installment of Bloomsbury Publishing's 33rd Music Book Series. Aaron's latest book is Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power, and is published by the University of Chicago Press. Aaron, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for having me. For listeners who may have yet to read your book, share with us what it's about. Well, what I do in this book is I look at the social, cultural, and musical changes that shaped rhythm and blues or soul music in Chicago, specifically from a period from about 1957 to about 1983. And then I also look at how the musicians themselves in the city became agents, not just of musical change, but also of social and political changes as well. And I spoke to more than 100 musicians activists, entrepreneurs, producers, and discuss how all of this happened and what also made it so influential worldwide and what made the music in Chicago stand out as music, along with being part of this larger movement. So why specifically Chicago? I grew up in Evanston, not far from Chicago. I spent pretty much my entire life here in Chicago, and I've always loved the music from Chicago. One of the things that I've also loved is reading about rhythm and blues music, soul music. Growing up, I read books like Peter Goralnik's Sweet Soul Music, which looked at the way soul music, primarily in the South, intersected with larger political and social themes. Um, A few years ago, there were... um, books by like dancing in the street by the scholar uh, Suzanne Smith, which looked at similar political social changes in Detroit and how that was responding, how music in Detroit, soul music was responding to these changes. And I felt that it was very necessary for such a book to uh, be about Chicago, Chicago rhythm and blues, because the music is so incredibly great. And there is so much in 
the way that musicians and Chicagoans were so much a part of such movements as the civil rights movement, the post-civil rights movement, the rise of African-American uh, urban politicians, uh, such cultural forces as Soul Train, as the rise of African-American advertising industry. A lot of that was so seeped in Chicago, so connected to Chicago, that I wanted to explore that as well. Another thing that I've been doing over these years is I've been writing about jazz. I was an editor at the jazz magazine, Downbeat, and I wanted to discuss how much jazz and rhythm and blues in Chicago had intersected. So those are my reasons for writing the book. And also just a, a great love I have for the people who made the music. And I was such, it was such an honor and privilege and joy to speak to so many of them. And that was another reason for writing the book. You mentioned that the period you covered is from the late 1950s to the early 1980s. And you don't move beyond that because those decades and the aesthetic and stylistic and musical choices necessitate or would necessitate their own books. Um, but set the scene for us. What was going on in Chicago during this time, and how did the culture of soul and R&B fit into it? Sure. Well, I started the book with um, the image of the Impressions, Curtis Mayfield, Jerry Butler, their group, as they were teenagers, along with their manager, Eddie Thomas, uh, walking down Record Row in the late 1950s. I thought that would be a great place to start. Um, and then, of course, uh, they grew up in the Gabrini Green um, housing projects, but a lot of their contemporaries grew up in the Chicago South and West Sides uh, during segregation. And segregation um, was still, is still very much a part of Chicago, but things were changing. Um, this was a, f- a few years later, Dr. King would come to Chicago. Well, about nine years later, Dr. King would come to Chicago. There was the rise of the civil rights movement, uh, the rise of uh, Afrocentric uh, philosophy, which I talk about in the book and how that intersected with music. There was also, um, and then I end the book, well, then a lot happened. And then I end the book in 1983 with the ascent of Harold Washington to become the first African-American mayor of Chicago. And musicians were very much a part of the Harold Washington campaign. Um, And then there were also musical changes that happened afterwards too, such as house music, and which wound up having its own book. There's a, a book by another scholar, Mika Salkin, about house music, but I had to end somewhere. So in the late 1950s with what was happening, it seemed like a good place to start all of the great music that was created in the 60s and 70s and into the early 80s, and then I had to end it there. And also, it just seemed like that was a good beginning, middle, end narrative. Absolutely. And when you consider all of the um, the, hist- the musical histories of cities like Memphis and Detroit that were covered very extensively, it's crazy to think that there was this scholarly hole, you know, when it comes to Chicago soul music. And this book does an amazing job of that. And and one of the most remarkable qualities of this book is the deep level of research um, that went into it. You mentioned you did over 100 interviews. How were you able to gain access to so many people? And, and what was that process of interviewing them like? Well, let me also backtrack and say there had been some very good books about soul music in Chicago. I want to mention Robert Pruder's book, Chicago Soul, as an example. And that came out in the early 1990s. Um, so there had been some, but I felt there should be more. Um 
I know we're on audio, not video. If we were in video, you could see the big <laughs> stacks and racks of books I have along with my records. And again, a lot of books about Memphis, Southern Soul, a lot of books on Detroit, but I felt there could be more about Chicago. And there still can be more about Chicago, still more that can be said. In terms of access to uh, musicians, um, some of them I interviewed for articles um, from writing for publications like the Chicago Tribune for Downbeat um, that provided access to some musicians. There were others who I contacted on social media. There were others who I would approach um, when I would see them at concerts and events. And then there was also word of mouth. I would meet somebody and somebody would put me in touch with somebody else and somebody would also, and most I'd say just about everybody who I wanted to approach to speak um, was agreeable. And that was just wonderful. And again, I was so privileged, so honored, um, so much in their in their debt. Um, and there was a couple interesting things, too. Um, I guess I could talk about one instance. Um, one of the primary, most important people in my book is Jerry Butler. And Jerry Butler, as I mentioned, singer in The Impressions, he also, brilliant, wonderful singer, he also ran a songwriter's workshop in the late 60s. And that was something else I wanted to write about was this collectiveness and this idea of musicians working as a cooperative. And he was very much a part of that. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there were political changes as well. And Jerry Butler became an elected official, um, Cook County Board for many, many years. And um, I'd interviewed him briefly for the Tribune, but I wanted to interview him in more depth for this book and left messages and never heard back. A friend of mine who I grew up with, uh, Matt DeLeon, a friend of mine from junior high school, that's how back, far back these things go, a friend of mine from junior high school, who at the time was the attorney for the Cook County Board. And he told me, hey, Aaron, you know, you're doing this book. You really need to talk to Jerry Butler. And you need to talk to him soon because he's going to be retiring very soon. And I said, oh, I'd love to, but um, haven't heard back. And Matt said, I'm meeting with him right now about some Cook County board business. I'll mention that to him. And an hour later, uh, Matt uh, emailed me and said, call this number. And it was Commissioner Jerry Butler's uh, cell phone number. <laughs> and so, and it was a wonderful interview. Um, we wound up, he was wonderful. The one regret is that he had so many funny things to say, which, you know, were in the context of me asking him questions and his funny responses, which I couldn't really include in the text because it didn't really flow right. But they're in the footnotes. A lot of my footnotes are footnotes like you would have where I reference my sources and everything, but some are little jokes and asides. So there's a couple of Jerry Butler <laughs> witticisms in there as well. Um, so there are many different ways in which I was um, interviewing people. And there were so many more I could have interviewed um, because there was just so many of these wonderful musicians. And I'm still uh, meeting uh, great people who were part of that scene from the 60s and 70s who, uh, you know, I who still have very important stories to tell. So there are so many. So a lot of these interviews, you're talking with people who were recalling events from 50 to 60 years ago and memories fade or they might have some kind of bias or ax to grind or, or something. You know, the facts can fluctuate over time. So how did you verify these stories? What was your journalistic process for that? Well, some of what they said could be documented. 
Um, some of it, for instance, you know, instances and what recording sessions people appeared on. Um, and yes, like you say, there are some instances of people with access to grind, people with personal issues. Um, I think for me, what was important in these stories were primarily what they showed about what this person was experiencing and how they shaped somebody's perspective. Um, and for instance, there were some stories that were told to me by the late Syl Johnson, and I can't verify their veracity. And I explain in the text that um, I hope the story is true because it's such a wonderful story. And you have to read the book to see what I'm talking about. But uh, I said right away, I can't vouch for the accuracy, the veracity of this story. But it indicates what his mindset was. It indicates how he felt about this particular time, place, and situation, and whether or not his actions were as they say, they do, uh, they are, they reverberate through the recording uh, that he made at this time. And this was the Is It Because I'm Black album, which was his statement about civil rights after Dr. King's assassination. And so, um, what it shows about Syl Johnson tells me more than things that were truthful. Now, there were a lot of people with access to grind. There were people who have grudges, things like that. Um, I, you know, I didn't want to put in anything that was um, hurtful. That was also just not part of the narrative. I mean, why, you know, there's really no purpose, but it was also the funny thing too, is there's a kind of an opposite, um, you know, thing about that is that um, there were certain people who were in the book who, People just had the most wonderful, nice things to say about, uh, for instance, uh, the late uh, Donny Hathaway um, as a singer, songwriter, producer, arranger. Everybody just said the most beautiful, wonderful, glowing things about him. And um, so, again, they're probably true. And I certainly hope they're true. I have no reason to feel otherwise. Um, and they're just, again, indicative of how people feel about Donny Hathaway. Um Clarence Ludd, um, the club owner who ran, late Clarence Ludd, um, who ran the High Chaparral uh, Club in the 1970s. Um, everybody had great things to say about him. And this is a club owner. Musicians in general do not have nice things to say about club owners uh, for all the reasons that, no, they don't for all the reasons that we understand. But he was one who everybody had the most glowing things to say about him. And um, when I would look up uh, articles about him in uh, publications like The Defender or back issues of Ebony and Jet, um, you know, they would report on some of the, um, you know, things that he did that were very altruistic. So um, again, um, it did corroborate what people were saying. Uh, There's some interesting things too, in that um, sometimes people would tell me things that um, certainly were... um, contrasted with the historical record. And um, I would put those in there because that was their perspective. Uh, For instance, in um, writing about um, high schools, um, like uh, Westside High Schools, and there were scholarly articles by scholars talking about um, the deprivation in these schools. But then when I would talk to people who um, attended these schools, uh, like the songwriter, Reynard Minor, who wrote the hit Rescue Me. And he just had glowing things to say about the school. Now, who's right, him or the historian? Well, I feel these perspectives should be put out there. And um, 
you know, and of course, with obviously with when you're a journalist, when you're a historian, you go through the evidence and then you put your own conclusion as a journalist or as a historian. But I felt that these perspectives were of equal weight and I felt they should all be put out there. One of the things that really strikes me with this book is, is again, all the stories from all the interviews. That's really impressive in its own right. But it's also the, the focus on black cultural and social power. And there's a lot of joy that emanates from these stories and emanates from those experiences. And that's something you don't really, you know, see as much with, you know, in terms of the black experience. It's either through overcoming adversity or struggling, but there's a lot of joy here. And we talked about a lot of the earlier publications that focus on Chicago music and you felt like there should be more. What was that element? What element was missing? One of the things there were, there were a few things. And um, one of them was that how the, for instance, um, Afro arts theater, which was the uh, theater run by uh, Phil Karan, who um, brought in Afrocentric thought, Afrocentric um, beliefs. There has been, um, he'd been, written about in books about jazz, but I felt that his role in soul music needed to be explored deeper because he had a big influence on people like Shaka Khan and people like Maurice White who founded Earth, Wind and Fire. And so I really felt that that needed to be put in an R&B context. It had been written about in the jazz context, like in George Lewis's book on the AACM, Power Stronger Than Itself. But I felt that, again, going about how the jazz and R&B needed to be more intertwined. Um, But also, too, I think that um, the role of um, musicians in elected politics and the different routes that people took, musicians took to empower themselves. I mentioned Jerry Butler. He was one who went through the elected um, role of an elected official. Um, Phil Karan, who I just mentioned, was an influence on people like Shaka Khan and Maurice White, who wanted to um, empower themselves through Afrocentric thought, spirituality, philosophy. Um, there were musicians like Shaka Khan and uh, Tyrone Davis who uh, spoke about their admiration for Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. So there was that more militant pathway as well. There were musicians like, of course, Curtis Mayfield, who um, sought empowerment through entrepreneurialism, running Kurtom Records, running his business along with his partner, Eddie Thomas. There were ones like Carl Davis, who ran, who went up through the ranks of the corporate model of Brunswick Records, his own company, Dakar Records. So he had the corporate means of empowerment. And he, alongside uh, the rise of Operation Push and the Push Expo, was part of this corporate model of empowerment. But then on another whole entire level is the empowerment of people to say, this music is ours, meaning that we can do what we want with our music. There were people like the composer and arranger, Charles Stepney, who felt that these you know, avant-garde classical ideas uh, belong as part of soul music. Um, teachers and people like James Mack, who was a teacher and arranger and composer, who felt that for African-American youths, the so-called European classical tradition is theirs as well, and their music uh, should reflect that. Um, there were also uh, people like the singers, um, like uh, Jackie Ross and Mitty Collier, who you know, refused to be pushed around by um, label people in Chicago. Um, so many different paths. And then, too, 
uh, the diversity in Chicago music echoed the diversity in approaches to empowerment. As you write in the book, you were seeking to detail, and this is your quote, how mass movements and localized efforts for dynamic change helped create R&B in Chicago and that musicians acted as change agents. Chicago is one of many cities going through a tumultuous time in, in the 60s and under the civil rights movement, such as other cities as Detroit and Memphis. Um, and these were areas where music blended with social and political consciousness. Were there differences in how Chicago musicians acted as change agents compared with musicians in other cities? That's a very interesting question. You know, in early drafts of my book, I did um, discuss that. I discussed how Chicagoans reacted differently to, for instance, the assassination of Dr. King than musicians in Memphis did and different than musicians in Detroit did. But I cut all that out uh, for the simple reason that much of my information about how Chicago musicians responded was by talking to these musicians, talking to people who were there, whether it was uh, Jerry Butler or, um, you know, um, Will, um, uh, Jerry Butler or um, Larry David, uh, Larry Wade, Larry Wade, who was a partner of uh, Terry Collier or Willie Henderson. Um, you know, and they were all there. They all experienced the riots. They experienced the aftermath. They experienced uh, the attempts to rebuild. Whereas in um, Memphis and Detroit, all of the information I was getting was through secondary sources, magazines, books, newspapers. You know, I would have had to go to Detroit and interview dozens and dozens of Detroit musicians. I would have had to go to Memphis and interview dozens and dozens of Memphis musicians um, to make a fair comparison because I'm comparing primary sources in Chicago to secondary sources in Detroit and Memphis and other cities, whether it's Philadelphia or whatever. It didn't seem like a, a good comparison. So I felt, okay, well, I'm going to stick to Chicago because these are my primary sources. Now, I would have loved to spend time in Detroit and Memphis and other cities and talk to as many musicians as I could, but that was just not practical, um, given the fact that the book had to get finished. Um, so, um, you know, that, that I really didn't make that comparison. But one thing about Chicago that did stand out is um, from the musicians I spoke to, and again, I can't, so again, I'm not going to compare it to the other cities because I didn't speak to so many musicians from other cities, but the attitude that I got, um, you know, from speaking to Jerry Butler and, um, you know, Larry Wade, uh, the songwriter, and, um, you know, Willie Henderson, so many others, uh, Willie Henderson, an arranger and horn player, was the idea that they wanted to work. They wanted to get back to work. They felt then they would work, you know, doing their jobs. And I think that was an attitude of, you know, let's, let's get back to work here. Let's create, let's continue creating. Now, again, if that was different than Detroit or Memphis, um, you know, since I don't have didn't speak to musicians. I can't make that comparison. So as these uh, musicians in Chicago were establishing their own musical independence and their own identity, um, you talk about how black representation and influence were establishing themselves in other cultural institutions. We're talking uh, film, television, advertising. Um, share with us how music influenced and was influenced by those other arenas. Well, that's the thing. I think uh, advertising was a really big deal because uh, Chicago had always been a big advertising center. And um, Chicago was dominated and still is actually by very large white uh, corporations, large white advertising firms. And, you know, I spoke to a few um, African-American advertisers who were, you know, just wanted to get started in the business in the late 1960s. A few 
doors, not as many doors, but a few doors were opening up to uh, black um, advertisers, but they had to really push the doors open themselves. And um, like Burrell and, um, you know, Barbara Gardner slash Barbara Proctor. And, you know, they wanted to also stand out and they wanted to stand out from the bigger white companies. And one thing that they had that the white companies, larger white companies did not have was music. And they had soul musicians who were quite happy to do jingles and commercials and TV shows, the uh, TV commercials. Um, and that made these advertisers successful and it helped them, you know, and for the musicians themselves, it was great because they got paid much more money than they would have gotten if they were sitting around waiting for royalty checks to come in, you know, from record companies for all the reasons that you can imagine. So for them, it was a bonus. And it also helped spread this music, this sound in other arenas besides records or the radio or actual performances. Of course, there was the Soul Train TV show which started here in Chicago. And, you know, the Soul Train has been written about in, in other uh, places as well. But, um, you know, I really felt that it was so crucial that um, it should have, it really needed to be part of this whole story. And Soul Train also had a political agenda at first, and it was very much initially, um, you know, tied in with activism, political activists and stuff. Now, unfortunately, those early Chicago episodes are nowhere you know, to be found, but uh, that I've found. Um, hopefully they'll turn up someday. And um, But yeah, that was another way was through the Soul Train uh, TV show. Film soundtracks, you know, became very big in the 1970s. Um, Curtis Mayfield being, you know, a big, you know, contributor to the whole you know, soul soundtrack market but also too there were some lesser known uh, films as well that i felt needed to be emphasized and the film uh, stony island uh from the late 1970s which presented um an endearing if idealized uh view of uh african-american and white musicians working together but it's such a charming film that really should be seen so you mentioned uh, film, you mentioned television and advertising. What's the role of radio during this time? I'm thinking, you know, such WVON as, as the obvious one. So talk about, about the role radio played during this time. Well, WVON was uh, certainly crucial. I mean, it was crucial in terms of not just providing an outlet for, uh, well, soul music from everywhere. It wasn't just a uh, soul, Chicago soul only station, obviously uh, WVON, which was owned by the chess uh, chess um, company, chess record company. Um, but there was also uh, WGRT as well. One of, there was important for a few reasons and not just for playing music, not just for providing a way to get this music out into the world, but also helping establish a sense of cultural identity among African-American youth in Chicago in the 1960s and and into the 1970s. And the idea of gathering and um, how they could make statements through even their clothing and f- forming a sense of identity, I think, in mainstream media in Chicago. And by this, I mean the big AM station WLS and um, you know local uh, TV shows and in the larger newspapers like um, the Chicago Tribune, uh, is that to the larger community of media in Chicago, you know the African American youth were invisible, and WVON 
gave this community visibility. And it, it could have not just been just from playing records, but also through, um, you know, through having record hops, dance hops. And I talked to uh, young people who, some of whom who became musicians, who were very much part of that scene and what that scene was all about in terms of establishing identity, establishing a group identity, as well as individual identities. Um, so, you know, these are very important. And it's funny too, because you ask me about what people have said and uh, Richard Steele, who's still very much a part of media in Chicago, um, told me that even though there was rivalry, there was also cooperation among different people in African-American media and in record labels here in Chicago, which is interesting too. Um, so there were definitely many different ways in which media was important. Then there was also the existence, the continuation, the endurance of the Chicago Defender and Ebony Magazine, Jet Magazine. So there was print media too, also, uh, continued to play a very big part in all of this. And, um, one of the things too, I think I should mention this as like advice to future researchers is that, um, for anybody who has a Chicago Public Library card, the entire archives of the Chicago Defender, which is an incredible doc, incredible, incredible institution going back more than 100 years, is available online, easily searchable. So, um, you know, so much uh, of this access is free to researchers that definitely does need to be taken advantage of. Yeah. Huge library advocate here, like com- completely understand the importance of, uh, of libraries. And, and that leads me to think about, um, you know, the thing about this book is there's a lot of information and you craft a very uh, cohesive narrative throughout. Um, but I want to get a sense of what were some of your biggest challenges when you were writing the book? Well, one of the challenges, um, and this is a very sad one, is so many people have passed on and um getting in touch with people and but i you know and i i knew that going in that there were a lot of people who were just not going to be uh, available um and you know and there was, i was just very heartbroken that there were some people who i wanted to speak to who passed on um, before i could um there were I think about 12 people who I interviewed for the book who, who died before the book was published. Um, so whatever, whatever I went through, I mean, the most emotionally draining was, was, was that, um, aspect was losing people. And I still have difficulty of course, uh, with that. Um, but then in terms of crafting the book was, um, taking the different sources, whether it's the interviews I did, you know, I just mentioned the uh, library research, um, academic research too, um, because I was drawing on such disciplines also, along with music, as you know, sociology and history and political science. But you know, it couldn't be too much of that because it was still essentially a music book. And um, but I felt it was important um, how to weave musical analysis in with my whole thesis and make sure that it all fit together as a narrative. Um, and I have to give, you know, a million degrees of um, thanks and credit to my editor, Elizabeth Branch Dyson, who, um, you know, was the best possible editor I could have to navigate through that and to come up with um, how to uh, balance all of this. Um, 
And it's, it's funny, though, because um, one of the things that uh, Elizabeth and I went back and forth on quite a bit was fine tuning my introduction and, you know, really honing it in and coming up with an introduction. And it was only after the book was published for like um, about a, a few months, like eight months or so after it was published, like, oh, that was a great idea I should have done for the introduction instead. So um, that was that was one challenge. But having a, a great editor, uh, really. And then also knowing when to end, knowing when to stop, knowing when to, um, you know, I mean, you know, I just mentioned the, the pain of not being able to speak to as many people as I wanted to. But, you know, there was a time when I had to, um, when I had to just get to writing it and sit down and do so. And, um, you know, that was something that, just to focus on the writing part as opposed to the, you know, research interviews and listening to music time and time again. And, um, cause I, if I'm listening to one song, I can't write about a different song cause that's too distracting. So just all of that, none of this was frustrating though. I mean, this was all part of the process that I expected. Um, so yeah. Was there anything that surprised you about writing the book? Um, you, there was a number of things that uh, surprised me. Um, I didn't realize at first um, how huge advertising was, and um, it's something that really uh, came about as I was working. Was what you know how important it was for the musicians to have you know those advertising um, jobs and that role. Um, also, I, you know, I had an idea as to how many records and singles uh, were released at this time, but um, it's a lot more, a lot more than I thought initially. Um, And then um, just the sheer number. And not only that, but how amazing they were and how diverse they were. And, you know, I mean, I knew that there was a lot of great, interesting, diverse music, but I kept working on it. I kept discovering more and more and more. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, that was interesting. And also too, um, I mentioned earlier that, um, when I talked to the songwriter, uh, Reynard Minor and, um, his views of growing up on the West side and going to high school were different than historians had said. And, uh, for many people, um, you know, their own experiences were different and unique. And so, um, you know, people would tell me about their unique experiences and they were different than, somebody else's and they were different than, you know, a lot of, um, historians and, and commenters, commentators had, uh, had stated. So, um, you know, everybody I spoke to and telling me their life story yielded surprise. And that's always an important thing too, when you're covering a, a, a narrative, um, that is focused on a marginalized group of people and whose history can be uh, essentially erased. And that's, uh, there's a lot of weight and responsibility for that. And the fact that you talked to over a hundred people about this and really went, you did your due diligence and went through this process is, is amazing to me. And it makes me think about um, the world we're in now and that, that level of responsibility. Since your book was published in 2019, a, a lot has happened in the world that has shaped public consciousness and dialogues on how we approach our collective understanding on race and representation and appropriation. And I wanted to get a sense of that of, um, as a white man who authored this book with black social issues at the heart of its narrative, how have you navigated this cultural landscape as an expert historian of soul and R&B and the challenges that come with that? One of the main challenges is to be a listener and um, to listen to 
the people who were telling me their stories. And, um, you know, I think another challenge along with, you know, being a different race than most, but not all of the people I interviewed, um, is also, I'm just from a different generation. I'm from a different time period. Um, and that all shaped a different perspective. Um, you know, I can only be who I am and I have to be honest about, you know, who I am. I'm not going to pretend to know what they know. I'm not going to pretend because that's what their voices are there for is to let me know and let the readers know what they know. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't feel that, that there's any other way to do it, but then to let people speak. Now we talk about the world we live in now. And I think the same is true today. And that is, it's important for anybody who wants to write about people's stories is to put the focus on listening, put the focus on listening to people talk about their lives, talk about what's important to them and what always was important to them. And I think that's, that's really what it comes down to. And again, it could be about, um, you know, African-American issues. It could be about the, about the situation in the Ukraine. I feel that, you know, it's important to speak to people and let them uh, give their perspectives as to uh, what's going on. And so um, I think that's really all I can say about that is just let them tell their stories and provide. And also too, but of course, you know, as we mentioned at the top of this is to, um, you know, look for corroboration uh, when it's there as well. I mean, you know, as much as an, as in awe as I was and am of all the people I spoke to, um, yes, there was still a process of fact checking and looking at things and corroborating and make sure that there's no uh, personal access to grind. Um, but another thing too, is to also just come into it knowing that there's going to be a diversity of opinions that, um, People will not agree with each other. People will not agree with the uh, historical narrative. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Um, but not to discount any of it. I think that's the most important thing is just not to discount. You know, it's like um, um, some of the people, when I would show them parts of the book, they would, you know, you know, say, well, you know, this person seems to be a bit uh, different, let's just say. And I'm like, yeah, but that voice needs to be there. And um, so I think that's important. That's crucial. As we discussed um, earlier, your narrative in the book covers from the late 50s to the early 80s. And while you don't go as in-depth to the later decades, you do kind of touch upon those. The book ends with you briefly exploring various ways soul and R&B continues to influence new generations of music makers and listeners. And you cite examples such as uh, hip-hop sampling, Afrofuturist aesthetic and philosophy, and even the social responsibility of reissue labels to properly tell narratives. And one of the things that really struck me about the end of the book is um, you discuss a rapper named Shay Smith who performs by the name of Rhyme Fest, Rhyme Fest yeah. and how he blends. Um, I'm sorry, Rhyme Fest. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, Rhyme Fest. Yeah. And uh, what, what Rhyme Fest, what, what Rhyme Fest does is he blends art with civic engagement, and uh, that. And to quote, the ties between music, economics, and a shared culture form a holistic sensibility. And I want to get your thoughts on the evolution of black cultural and social power through music over the last several decades and what the parallels and differences regarding the intersection of politics in music and business um, have with that period you cover and move on up. Well, I, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways. Um, I want to go back, you know, you mentioned popular music, hip hop and stuff. And I want to talk about jazz as well. Um, 
here in Chicago, there's um, people like there are people like Mike Reed, a wonderful jazz drummer, wonderful jazz musician, who was also an entrepreneur and runs Constellation, Hungry Brain. He you know, runs the Pitchfork Festival as a volunteer. He runs the uh, programming committee of the Chicago Jazz Festival. He really takes his responsibilities as a musician, as an entrepreneur, as a citizen very, very seriously. And, um, you know, it's a funny thing because uh, the reason why he lives in Chicago is because his father from Louisiana saw the impressions and uh, felt that, wow, if, uh, you know, people in Chicago, if African-Americans in Chicago can look this sharp and be this sharp, I want to move to Chicago. So, you know, he moved to Chicago. Now his son is a great musician, great entrepreneur, great presence here in Chicago. Uh, Rhymefest. Um, who you just mentioned, you know, a rapper who uh, he ran for alderman and he's also engaged in other philanthropic efforts. Um, there is that there is that idea of also educating too. Um, you know, a lot of musicians who are educators um, as well as activists. And, you know, that's certainly an entrepreneurs and that's certainly very important. Um, so I think then and now it's, it's not just the um, political role of, you know, running for office as Rhymefest does. It's you know, not just in conscious raising lyrics, as many people do who are in hip hop or R&B or, you know, or rock as well. Um, but also, you know, running businesses, small scale, large scale, um, and also just uh, being, you know, present and, um, you know, creating just great music can be uh, liberating and empowering in and of itself. And I mentioned um, the young woman, uh, Raven Linnae, who um, I don't believe lives in Chicago at the moment, but she did when I wrote the book. And, uh, you know, someone who brings in, um, you know, a, a fresh spirit and um, especially, you know, regarding her addressing African-American women. And then there were people like uh, Jamila Woods, who also, you know, creates from a poetic spirit and brings that, you know, sense of history to her poetic uh, delivery. Um, and so there are, you know, so many examples, but also too, um, you know, there are just musicians who are just great at what they do. And I think that in and of itself is, you know, makes an incredible statement. So like in the sixties, like in the seventies, like today, there are, you know, many great examples and many diverse examples. Um, you know, many bad examples too, but why, why talk about them? So you're an expert in this area and you, and of course, cause you wrote the book covering this period and you are able to, um, highlight, um, you know, things several decades later, where do you see things going from here? What's the next couple decades look like, um, for the influence of soul and R and B and what they represent? Well, I think it's fantastic um, the way so many uh, younger generation musicians, whether they're in hip hop um, or audiences, you know, are responding to the music. And again, I, I mentioned samples is just one way, but I think the general overall sound um, as well. One interesting phenomenon, which I didn't really go into too much depth in in the book, but I kind of gave a little hint of it, is... Um, a lot of uh, music from this period, especially soul music from Chicago, has become very popular in uh, Latino communities in East L.A. and in Mexico and other countries. And that's a phenomenon that I'd like to spend more time uh, thinking about and exploring and looking into. So, um, you know, it's an, and I mean, the 
love of this music is really strong in these communities. Um, so that's another phenomenon that I, I really do uh, need to explore in, in greater depth. Um, maybe that's a future book or a future uh, scholarly article. Um, but I think, you know, I think the message, I just um, I think that younger musicians are always going to be, you know, not just, you know, as they say, crate digging, record collecting, but, you know, exploring instruments, playing music. I mean, they're just, again, to give a jazz as an example, there are so many great young uh, jazz musicians playing it's only natural that they'll be intersecting with uh, r&b and soul musicians who are younger as well and there'll be future collaborative efforts across genre lines across stylistic lines um you know there'll be um you know um spoken word artists and rappers who will continue to bring consciousness uh, to their lyrics consciousness to their you know delivery um it's funny, I keep showing my age because a lot of the hip-hop examples I think of are, well, they're younger than me, but they're still not young per se. But, um, you know, um, yeah, well, I guess, you know, people like Kendrick Lamar, I guess, would be one example. He's not from Chicago, but, um, you know... Um, Actually, I mentioned Chance the Rapper in the in the epilogue, and I guess he's still young, isn't he? Um, and uh, he's younger than me. Uh, I can say that. So um, there'll be people like him. You know, people who uh, continue to a uh, no name, another another rapper who, um, you know, again, music is different, but I think the belief system, the um, what goes on around it, um, how the connection between performer and audience. You know, things are never going to be the same as they once were, but one can find echoes, reverberations, uh, similarities um, as well. The only thing that I wish is that um, more musicians from the 60s and 70s um, would be alive to see and hear um, that appreciation. Um, we just lost um, a few months ago the great Syl Johnson. And, you know, fortunately, um, Syl lived long enough to, you know, uh, see his music being sampled and to benefit from it as well. Of course, he had to continue to fight to get his uh, payments and, um, you know, glad he did. So, you know, I, I just hope more musicians are able to um, see and hear and reap the benefits of this attention. So you, you mentioned several times about musicians who have passed over the last couple of decades. And I'm thinking about the earliest interview you credit in the book, and it was with Terry Collier. And it was conducted in 1997, long before you began thinking about this book. And you say in the book he caused many people to think deeply. And I want to get a sense of what was his impact on you to think more deeply. Well, I interviewed Terry Collier. That was for a Downbeat article. Um, and that was when... Terry Collier, to give a little backdrop, um, he's, he sang folk music in the 1960s. And then in the latter 1960s, he recorded his own albums, um, which were a combination of folk and jazz and soul. And the great Charles Stepney produced him. And uh, Terry Collier wrote a lot of great songs uh, with Larry Wade for his own records. And also they wrote songs for groups like the Dells. Um, the Love We Had Stays On My Mind. Um, and then he um, recorded in the 1970s, but then Terry quit music because he was a single father and made the decision, I'm going to be a single dad and get a job to stay at home and raise my daughter. And he did that very successfully. And then in the late 90s, he started recording again. And that was the occasion in which I interviewed him for Downbeat. And um, you know, his lyrics are very deep, very moving, um, very spiritual. Um, his music stood out as well because of this, this combination of different things. 
um, different, you know, whether it's jazz or soul or folk, and really expanded that whole idea of what is soul music. Well, it is Terry Collier as much as it is the Dells. And people might hear a vocal group harmony like the Dells and say, okay, well, that's soul, but Terry's doing his own thing. But, you know, with Terry, it showed how expansive this music is. Um, you know, he set the path for people who came later, like Prince, you know. And, um, but anyway, he also just as a very, um, just a very deep moving spiritual figure as well. And um, not only was his music so expansive that could include so many different things, but it was also done uh, from a place of great love and spiritual spirituality in, in the best sense of the word. And, you know, the songs he sang, the lyrics about, uh, you know, what color is love being, you know, really just a wonderful example of that. And, um, you know, and that was who he was as a person too. In the times I spent with him, not just in the interview I did with him, but also just, you know, spending a little time with him. And he also, in the last few years of his life, just was very focused on, um, family. So, um, you know, he thought made people more think deeply about what music could be, what this music could be, uh, what one's experiences could be, because he also, as I mentioned, came out of the green to green, um, neighborhood along with Jerry Butler and Curtis Mayfield and them. But, you know, his music had a different path, but it was a path of his own. Um, and he was a real leader as well in terms of saying that things can be different. We can take from these different traditions. And so yeah, it was just, he also showed me too that, you know, hey, there's a whole lot of different things going on with the Chicago musical history I hadn't thought about. So at the time that I interviewed Terry Collier in 1997 was also uh, when I was writing about the Pharaohs, who were a group that came out of the Afro Arts Theater, who their records were being reissued at that time. And um, you know, long story short, the Pharaohs, some of them spun off into Earth, Wind, and Fire, but that's getting ahead of the story. But I started to think, okay, a lot of these people like Terry Collier, like the Pharaohs, their their music is not being written about as much as it should. And also their music is very different from each other, but they were from the same city at the same time. So what is going on here in Chicago at this time? Because there's, there's something going on. And of course, also, I always loved Curtis Mayfield, Curtis Mayfield's music always meant a lot to me. And you know, he's very prominent in uh, Robert Pruder's book. But I thought, okay, how does Curtis Mayfield, and what did he do? How does that fit into this whole context of what Terry Collier was doing, with what the Pharaohs were doing, with all these other people in the city were doing, and what was going on in the city? So I think it's a very long and disjointed answer to your question, but yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's great. I love it. I, I, all, all your answers have been just fantastic, uh, just, just hearing this. Um, uh, what have you learned since Move On Up was published? Uh, well, one of the things um, that I learned, and again, I mentioned the um, uh, the uh, influence of Chicago soul music on contemporary uh, Latino culture, which I'm still learning about. I'm still, um, you know, uh, putting uh, you know putting that uh, trying to think of a way that that could be something. Um, there were a couple people in the book who. Um, I felt should have um, their own books. And um, I'm working actually with one of them right now on that. So um, I probably shouldn't say more because that's still a project that's still in the works. Um, but um, yeah, I certainly learned a lot more about um, certain individuals than I had previously known. 
So soul and R&B music is such an important passion for you, jazz as well. I mean, I follow you on social media. I see all the cool things you're doing. It's really amazing. And I want to know, what do you want people who may not be as familiar with soul and R&B to understand and take away from the experience of listening to that music? I think one of the things that's important is to realize how diverse it is. Um, That, you know, when people with jazz, uh, people understand, okay, well, there's swing, and that's very different than bebop, which is very different than what might be considered avant-garde jazz, and that's different than, you know, electronic jazz fusion, and, you know, which is great. I mean, I, and I you know, love so many different aspects of jazz. I'm certainly not, you know, prejudiced about any one. And I think soul music um, should also be treated as a diverse form of music with many different strains. And, you know, one of the things that's fascinated so much for me with that resonated so much with me about soul music in Chicago was that a lot of these different strains were um, wonderful and great here in Chicago, flourished here in Chicago. So when one listens to soul music, listen to how diverse it is. And also too, singers obviously are important, but also listen to arrangers, producers, instrumentalists, you know, with each great soul record, um, you know, there's so many people as a part of it that, you know, as wonderful as these singers are, and I could just list every one of my favorite soul singers, they also had wonderful drummers, wonderful bassists. You know, listen to the bass line as well. Listen to how all of this worked together because there is so much incredible, oftentimes very, um, you know, um, diverse, of a very intricate uh musical interplay going on with a great soul record just as there is with a great jazz record and you know there might not be as much improvisation but there probably will be some so just consider all these things going on um that it's never just a simple two and a half minute tune there's more to it than that so one of the things you include in your book is a selecting discography and uh, you mentioned a lot of music but someone actually created a spotify playlist of every song you mentioned in the book and it's something like 12 13 hours long it's a lot of music um i have been listening to it um one of my highlights uh for me was the dells the love you had stayed on my mind which we you mentioned earlier i had never heard that before that was it opened doors for me um I want to know what are some of your favorite songs you covered in the book? The title track, Move On Up, um, you know, certainly. Um, and I have to say, though, that um, every time I'm asked for my favorites, it changes. Um, there's so many, so many great ones. And, you know, you asked me also what I learned uh, since writing the book. And, um, you know, there was a whole bunch of singles I found that I didn't include <laughs> because I didn't know about them. There's thousands of them. So um, Move On Up, the title track, uh, Is It Because I'm Black, the late Sil Johnson's, um, The Dells, Love We Have, uh, Stays On My Mind. Um, you know, I mentioned Terry Collier's What Color Is Love. Um, you know, Jackie Ross, uh, Selfish One, um, you know, uh, Mitty Collier uh, as well. Um, you know, I had a talk with my man. Um, you know, there are so many. Oh, um, Lost Generation, um, Slide Slick the Wicked, um, you know, uh, Shy Lights, For God's Sake, and More Power to the People, um, Barbara Acklin, uh, you know, so many of her songs. Um, you know, I did it, uh, Barbara Acklin. Um, you know, I just go keep going and going. So once you get me going about favorites, um, you know, um, I go on forever. Duke of Earl, Gene Chandler, Duke of Earl, (laughs) um, you know, Major Lance, Rhythm, um, you know, um, so many. 
and we'll save all those new singles you discovered for the expanded edition should it come down the road i hope so oh I absolutely so. and um, you know that's one of the things that i you know i would like more opportunities to dj is just to play records for people i love you know sharing music with people it's it's just so great you know it's a lot of fun and um as just a fun question to end with who would you have liked to have interviewed for this book but couldn't living or dead well living or dead well curtis mayfield i thought so <laughs> he great he graces the cover of your book and uh, yeah, he's Curtis such a central figure as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it was, I mean, uh, yeah, so that was without question, without question. <laughs> well, excellent. Aaron, this has been a great conversation and well, I had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Great to be a part of this. Absolutely. And uh, this was a this was a wonderful interview for me because I, I read your book uh, during that first summer COVID in, in 2020. And I've been in Chicago for 11 years now. And, you know, as every Chicago, and you have ups and downs of the city and reading your book made me fall in love with Chicago again. And I know that even if it wasn't during a very difficult time, I still would have had that connection with your book. That's how much I, I love this book. Well, thank you very much. That that means that means a lot to me because that's what the book is all about. So thank you very much for saying that. Very kind of you. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Aaron Cohen. His book is Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power, and is published by the University of Chicago Press.